0: Please turn your Bibles with me again to John chapter 11. The last time we checked into the Gospel of John last week, Jesus was about to get executed by stoning for saying that he was the Son of God. That execution failed. It fizzled out. Jesus and the disciples went out to where John the Baptist had been ministering to before on the east side of the Jordan River. And remember, people who had heard John preaching, they came and they heard Jesus and they believed in him because, if we ask why, because his words and his actions had rightly declared that he was the Son of God. Same message, two different responses. We could say his sheep were hearing his voice, and he knew them, and they followed him. But if it wasn't already hard enough, following Jesus was about to get even harder as he moves even closer now to the cross. But remember, hard isn't bad. It's just hard. In fact, many times, hard is glorious. This is always true for the Christian, because to those who love God, all things work together for our good, conforming us into the image of his Son, Jesus Christ. And this is especially true concerning the cross itself, the cross of Christ, considered in the Bible. It's called in the Bible, the glorification of the Son. So, that, what some might call a stumbling block, Some people might call that a stumbling block or anything hard at all, but especially the cross, something to avoid altogether. To those who are believing in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, it is the wisdom and the power of God. It is glorious. In order to see what some or what most would call bad as glorious, we need to keep our eyes fixed on the light of the world. And Jesus is going to remind us of this today in John 11. Uh, While he gives us every reason, further evidence, how about raising someone from the dead? He's going to give us all the more reason to believe that he is the light of the world, that he is the resurrection and the life, that he is Lord, our Savior. Okay, so John chapter 11, starting in verse 1, says, now a certain man was ill. Lazarus. Lazarus is from Bethany. And that's the village of Mary and her sister, Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother, Lazarus, was ill. Now, this anointing of Jesus doesn't happen in the Gospel of John until chapter 12. Remember, we are in chapter 11. So what gives? Why is he giving uh, anecdotal tips here on something he hasn't even written about yet. And if you think about it, one thing to remember is that the Gospel of John was written after Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what's called the Synoptic Gospels. John was written in the 80s, not the 1980s, the 0080s, right? And then uh, Matthew and Mark and Luke would have been written late 50s, early 60s of those three books in that period of time. So, the account of Mary anointing Jesus is found in Matthew 26. It is found in Mark 14. So, original readers think the first readers of the Gospel of John may very well have already read Matthew and Mark. And so they would have known this story. But the interesting thing in that, though, is that neither Matthew nor Mark tell the reader, tell their reader, who the woman is who was doing the anointing. So, when you read, It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. If you'd read the other Gospels first, you'd be having one of those, oh, I see, moments. Okay, does that make sense? That's what he's sharing. Also, do you notice how it just says at the beginning of this chapter, a certain man was ill. A certain man was ill. Why does it say that that way? I think it's this. John 11 is not about... Lazarus. Who is John 11 about? Jesus Christ. Lazarus is a certain man. Jesus raises people from the dead. (laughs) So we're setting this in its right mode. Okay, let's not get hung up on Lazarus. That poor guy had to probably die again later on. So, sorry Lazarus, right? But but he got to be a part of something that glorified the Son, and so I'm sure he was all right with it. Okay, And by the way, Lazarus' name means helped by God. Very fitting. Verse 3. So the sisters sent to him. They sent a messenger saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Okay, number one, how did this not lead to death when we know Lazarus died and Jesus died? This event, as we are going to see, this event starts this chain reaction that points right to and leads right to the cross. But if you ask the question, how does this not lead to death, we have to answer that with because what it led to was life. It led to life. Lazarus' illness led to a miraculous resurrection. And this miracle would lead to the final plotting of the Jews, the Jewish leaders with uh, pointing to Jesus' death, but then also after his death, his burial, and after his burial, his resurrection. Okay, So this illness includes death, but it doesn't stop there. It leads to life. Number two, the second question, how did this lead to the glory of God? How did this sickness lead to the glorification of the Son? Remember, just like the blind man, this sickness was for the glory of God. But how so? Well, through the miracle pointing itself, pointing to people, pointing people to who Jesus is. This miracle points people to who Jesus is. But then also this miracle ushers in, like I said, the final preparations for the glorification of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's going to say this in John 12. The time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister, that's Mary, and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Does that sound kind of backwards to you? He loved them so much that he stayed. What? But we're going to see in a little bit why that is. Verse 7. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. Uh, Bethany is less than two miles from Jerusalem. So they're going back right into where they came from. And the disciples didn't like that. They said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? They're saying things are going well here on the east side of the Jordan. People are coming to you, remembering what John the Baptist taught and they're believing. Why leave? Why leave? And Jesus answered, verse 9, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. Question. What is, or who is, the light of the world? Well, it's Jesus, of course. Of course. In John 8, Jesus said, I am the light of the world and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. So what is Jesus saying here to his disciples in these verses? And I think there are at least three things that Jesus is saying. Number one, the light needs to shine in this way right now, right then. The light is going to shine here. This illness Lazarus' illness is for the glory of God. There's something that Jesus is going to do in that instance that will declare, shine that light on who he he is and what he is doing. Okay, so the light of the world is about to shine very brightly. Number two, to reject the light, to decide to walk in darkness, that's going to result in stumbling. To reject the light, to walk in darkness, is going to result in stumbling. So what do we see when we we take this word picture and then compare it to a passage like Romans 9, 30 through 33? It says this, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. And that's an appropriate time to say, as if, as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. They're in darkness and they're stumbling. But who is the stumbling stone? I'm asking all these questions and the answer to them all so far is Jesus, right? Who is the stumbling stone? Jesus. Who is the light of the world? Jesus. Psalm 69. This was in our devotions this week on our blog. Psalm 69. I'm going to read to you verses 30 through 32. It says this. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving for what he's done. Does that make sense? I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves, one of those kind. When the humble see it, that thanksgiving pleases the Lord more than an ox or a bull. When the humble see it, they will be glad. They'll be glad. Whew. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. Okay? The humble see God's way and they rejoice. The humble see that they're thanksgiving for what God has already done for them that that their standing with God is not based on whether they've killed enough animals and slaughtered enough and, sh- and shed enough blood and done all the right things. The people who see that that's not how their salvation comes, the humble see that and they are glad. So then, what would the proud see that as? Well, how dare you? I slaughtered this many sheep. I paid for this many ox oxen and bulls. I did all of these things in the law. I kept the law like you wouldn't believe. So much better than all these people did. And what has the light of the world become to them? A stumbling block. The proud do not rejoice as the humble do. And by the way, what is the irony of that? The proud take offense at God because they were so and wonderful. But what is true there is no one righteous, no not one. The very thing they are proud of is the very reason they aren't able to enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's amazing, isn't it? Walking in darkness, to reject the light, to decide to walk in darkness will result in stumbling. It will. Why did the Jews stumble over this rock of offense? Because as Jesus said in John 3, they loved the darkness, which was pursuing that self-centered, self-attained righteousness, which is impossible rather than the light. So then number three, number three. Jesus is saying this, receiving persecution is not stumbling. Receiving persecution is not Stumbling. And by this I mean, if someone gets upset with you or with me, with us, for shining the light of Jesus Christ and the gospel, if someone gets upset with us for that, it is not we who have stumbled. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John got arrested for preaching the gospel. What was their response? They said to those authorities, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you judge. They're saying, God told us to go make disciples. You're telling us to stop. We're going with God's command, not yours. Okay, so that's what happened there. Of course, uh, the only answer is to that, you better obey God. That's the only right response to that command that they were given by the Jewish authorities. But, after all this transpires, Peter and John are threatened by them. Then they are released. And then guess what they did? They went back to their brothers. They went back to their sisters in Christ. They went to the church. And did they say, well, um, let's not make them angry anymore. They're going to get angry. Let's just go ahead and stop. Let's kind of pare it back a little bit. Let's just wait. Let's be quiet. Did they encourage them to be more discreet, to not stir anything up? Is that what happened? No. First, they prayed together for boldness. They prayed together in the face of this opposition for boldness. And then guess what happened in Acts 5? They got arrested again. No! Oh yes, they got arrested again. Peter's response to the authorities, if you can believe it, this time, we must obey God rather than men. Question. Who was stumbling and who was walking in the light in Acts 4 and 5? Were Peter and the apostles stumbling by boldly continuing to walk into the crowds of lost and dying people and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with them? That's not stumbling. They were walking in the light. So Christian, just because someone trips you Knocks you over, just gives you a cross look. Sometimes that's all it takes, right? Just because somebody gives you a cross look for sharing your faith in Christ, that doesn't mean you're the one who's stumbling. And if we take our eyes off of Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, if we take our eyes off of Jesus, off of who he is and what he's doing and the truth of his promises and his, his coming to rule and reign, and if we instead look at the cares of this world, at the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the praise of man, that desire for the approval of man, we might make it through all kinds of interactions at the schoolhouse or at work or wherever. We might make it through all kinds of interactions and even seem to have gained the respect of the world around us. But how is that better than what you have as a Christian? Are we here to gain the whole world? That is not our mission. Church, receiving persecution is not stumbling. It's not stumbling. Uh, What good will that do? to gain the whole world and to gain the approval of man what good will that do i have to ask the question are we so attracted to their stumbling lives that we've decided not to mess with the good thing that they've got going when that good thing will be what leads them to eternal damnation this is psalm 73 We look at the world and we see how wonderfully everybody is doing, but we got to make sure we remember to put quotes around that wonderfully. Because where is it going? And what do we have? And if we begin to see the, the allure of the sins of the world and the desires of the world, the desires of the flesh around us, and we start to clamor for these things and we clamor for the praise of man, where will the gospel message go? not out of our mouths. Does that make sense? What we have is far better. Receiving persecution and not stumbling, but continuing to follow Jesus in and through that persecution. That is walking in the light. That's walking in the light. And Jesus is about to walk right back into the fire here. Jesus is walking right back into Judea. And this miracle that he's about to do is really the beginning of the end of this earthly life and ministry. It starts the chain reaction that culminates the cross, but he's going. The light of the world is going to shine for the glory of God and for your salvation. For your salvation. Verse 11. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Let's just stay here then. And now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, they're not getting it. So Jesus says, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there. I'm glad that I did not heal him before he died. So that, we say, well, why would you be glad about that? So that you may believe. That's better than someone's physical death. That's more weighty than someone's physical death. Believing. He says, but let us go to him. So one of the reasons Jesus would raise Lazarus was to strengthen his disciples' faith speaking of verse 16 one of his disciples thomas called the twin or the name didymus means twin said to his fellow disciples let us also go that we may die with him he's excited about this isn't he now, this, this sleeping death analogy is found all over Scripture. Uh, for example, the kings of Israel, First and Second Kings, that area would sleep with their fathers. That was a terminology that was used when they died. In Psalm 13, David asks God to give him some hopeful understanding in the midst of hardship, lest he sleep the sleep of death. In Daniel 12:2, we see that sleeping metaphor um, move forward to the idea of waking up. Not just the sleeping, but the waking up as in waking up from your sleep in, in the resurrection, coming back from the dead, rising from the dead. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, continuing on that train of thought, the Apostle Paul writes that, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, saying the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, and by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. And then specifies in that passage in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ is the first to have woken from his slumber. And then the saints, those who belong to Christ, will be raised from the dead. Amen. And then those who will be raised in the final judgment. And of course, 1 Thessalonians 4, which says, verse 13, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord God himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command. Not a suggestion, a cry of command with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first and then we who are alive, which tells you a little bit about what Paul thought about the timing of these things, we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So, I guess falling asleep isn't that bad after all. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It's not the death, it's the dying, right? That we don't like so much. But as soon as that's done, (laughs) as soon as that's done, these bodies one day will be awakened and all will be made new. Praise God. Also, remember Thomas Notice in this passage, the foreshadowing of doubting Thomas. Seemingly loyal to the death. Let us go that we may die with him. But doubting. Doubting Thomas. We'll have to keep an eye on him and see if anything happens to his faith. The Apostle John might use that as a little foreshadowing for future events. Okay, verse 17. When Jesus came, he found, not that he was surprised, that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for days. And for those of you doing the math, on the number of days, Jesus had been on the other side, remember of the Jordan River, per John ten forty, which would have been a day's journey from Bethany. So he was a day's journey away. So if Mary and Martha realized Lazarus' death was imminent and sent someone to Jesus, that took one day, and then Jesus waited two days, days two and three, and then went to Bethany day four. Okay, no problem. There's your four days right there. And for those of us who are wondering why Jesus waited those two days, when you would think he should have rushed to Bethany, rushed to be by Lazarus' side, if four days had passed since the messenger went to Jesus and four days had passed since Lazarus had died, what was true of Lazarus before Jesus was even told about his sickness? Lazarus was already dead. And Jesus knew that. Okay, So his waiting two days was not heartless. He was waiting for a greater purpose. But wait, there's more. Here's the greater purpose. There is a rabbinical teaching... That the spirit of the deceased actually hovers around the body. This is not true, by the way, okay? But there's a rabbinical teaching, so these people probably would have been thinking about this and thinking about how this was going to transpire over these days. But that the spirit of the person would hover around the body for three days, waiting for the chance to re-inhabit the body. Three days. But on the fourth day, as the body really began to decompose... It was said and believed that the spirit of that person would leave. They gave up. And only then would the death of that person be considered completely irreversible. Like I said, we know that's not true. That's not how that works. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But this does explain a whole lot when we consider why it would matter that Jesus would wait till the fourth day to arrive on the scene here in Bethany. Jesus knows what these people believe, and a third day raising from the dead just wouldn't have done. (laughs) Does that make sense? He needed to wait until they all knew the Spirit was gone, even though the Spirit was already gone. Okay, Lazarus, as far as everybody can tell, is dead, dead. They don't think the Spirit's hovering around anymore. Lazarus is dead, dead. He is not mostly dead. He is irreversibly dead. Verse 18 Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. This could have been Jewish leaders, it could have just been people from Jerusalem, or quite possibly both. Okay, so you know, it was customary. It was customary for the Jews to bury their dead on the day of their death, and then for a period of mourning, which lasted up to 30 days. 30 days. And the first seven were the greatest days of mourning, like on purpose, on purpose, the first seven were greater uh, greater amounts, louder volume of, of mourning. And so it was not unusual for friends and fellow mourners of the family to stay through that first week. So all of this being said, that's why people visiting from Jerusalem would be arriving even still on the fourth day and carrying that on into that week. But then also, as far as the greater narrative of this gospel goes, people from Jerusalem have just shown up. And Jesus didn't get there before all of these people start showing up. These people from Jerusalem, which means there's going to be people going back to Jerusalem after all of this happens, perhaps with a story to tell. Verse 20, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. Mary remained seated in the house. Uh, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give it to you. At this point, Martha's expressing her confidence in Jesus' ability to have healed the not-yet-dead Lazarus. And that even though Jesus didn't make it in time, she hasn't lost her faith in him. But Jesus is about to give her good reason for an increase in her faith. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day meaning the resurrection. Martha knew the Daniel 12 passage, didn't she? Martha was looking forward to the same resurrection that you and I are still looking forward to. That's what she was thinking about. She thought Jesus was simply giving her good comfort based on the promises of God, which, by the way, is great comfort and encouragement for all of us. This is why we, as Christians, are able to grieve or to mourn as not as others do with hope, like we read from 1 Thessalonians but Jesus isn't done. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die physically, yet he shall live. Eternal life cannot be forwarded by the death of these physical bodies that we have. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Never die. You could also translate this, uh, but you wouldn't because it's not how we would say it, but you could translate this as everyone who lives and believes in me shall not die forever. Or you could even say, they'll never die forever. And then he says, do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Where does the resurrection come from? Jesus. Where does life come from? Jesus. How does one receive resurrection? Life, never dying forever? By believing in Jesus, do you believe this? Do you believe this? In Jesus' explanation, his use of the word for believe, in the grammar, it's present and active. It's not past and dead. It's present and active. He is saying, "Are you believing? Are you believing?" Mary's response: She says it in the perfect tense. Lord, I've believed, and I am believing. That's how she responds. And what does her believing consist of? Well, she's believing that Jesus is Lord, she says. That's submission. She's believing that Jesus is God the Son. That's his deity. She's believing that Jesus is the Christ who's coming into the world. And then to do what? And Jesus said, I've come that they may have life and have it abundantly. How? Isaiah 53 Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him as stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he has—he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way, walking around stumbling in the darkness. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Are you believing? Can you say with Mary... Lord, I have believed, and I am believing. If you are, you will never see death. Verse 28. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, she's not telling everybody in the room, the teacher's here and he's calling for you. I realize Martha still doesn't know what Jesus is about to do, nor does anyone else. And when she, Mary, heard it, she rose quickly and went to him, now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. Uh, when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. And if you were used, uh, used to people going to the new tomb of a recently deceased loved one in order to cry out and wail in mourning, and you saw the deceased sister get up in a hurry and run off toward the grave, what would you assume? Perhaps she was overcome with emotion it would be kind then for you and loving to go with her to comfort her to weep with those who weep and that's exactly what they did so remember eyewitness account check if only jesus and his disciples and mary and martha and lazarus were involved uh, maybe you could call for a conspiracy here maybe you want an audience for this miracle you've got an audience uh, all the Jews from Jerusalem, they rushed here now to the scene. Verse 32, Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Different sister, same grief. And When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, so Mary, in fact, was overcome with emotion, and those with her did follow her in, in this fellowship of suffering. When he saw all of this, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And the wording of being deeply moved and greatly troubled here, they are more closely tied with an anger. This isn't just sadness. The literal word construct here in the Greek means to snort like a horse. So Jesus may very well here have just shuddered with deep indignation. Having been brought face-to-face with the pain and suffering that comes in physical death. Why? As a result of sin. This is the world under the curse. This weeping, this wailing, this suffering, this death, this is the world under the curse. This is what Jesus is bringing to an end. He is the resurrection and the life. These are some of the Lord's beloved sheep Pained by the suffering and loss of this sin-cursed world. And God the Son hates it. He is moved by it. Church, he loves you. And he hates sin. And he hates death. And he said, verse 34, where have you laid him? Remember, he is still in this emotional state. Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also kept this man from dying? Those are some consoling words. Now this word for wept is not the same in the Greek for the wailing out loud display of mourning that the others were doing in this passage. This this weeping, Jesus weeping here is the word for the shedding of tears. This was an inner pain that overflowed out of his eyes, quietly bursting out in tears over what was transpiring and over all that Jesus knew. Of course, people love to ask, well, why did Jesus weep? We might speculate that it was simply for the death of Lazarus, like they did, or for the pain of those who were weeping around him. Perhaps Jesus was weeping because Lazarus had to come back and do this whole dying thing over again. Once is enough already, isn't it? But it's not. I already said that to you. It's not death we're worried about. It's the dying part, right? But remember also this Jesus is getting increasingly closer to his own death. The day when he would die in our place, he is about to take the wrath of God for what brought all of this about in the first place. Taking the wrath of God that we deserve on himself, on the cross for our sin. So I think it's fair to say that Jesus had plenty of things to shed tears over in this instance. And it would be pretty silly for us to think that all of it wouldn't have been on his mind. And with the clarity and with an understanding of the gravity of these moments and the weight of sin and the terribleness of evil and the contrast that this world is from the glories and the holiness of God, we think, oh, that's a hard thing. But it's a disaster. The holiness of God, the glories of heaven, and the presence of our Lord contrasted with the death of our loved ones because of the cursedness of our sin brings him to tears. Brings him to tears. Perhaps if we truly understood what it took for Jesus to take on flesh, to dwell amongst our sinful selves, to live in this sin-cursed world, to watch his own creation reject him and die, to watch people who even believe in him, thinking it was a bad thing to physically die when absence from the body is presence with the Lord, perhaps if we could see everything the way he can, we would be brought to tears more often ourselves. But more often we think things like, oh, bless his heart, he must have really loved Lazarus. Or what a pity, if he'd been here faster, he could have saved Lazarus. Those are very right here, right now things to think, aren't they? And these responses just make matters worse in the heart of the God of the universe. Verse 38. Jesus deeply moved again, intensely moved again, still with the indignation in his heart, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was laid against it. Jesus said, and you have to imagine this with the passion of a holy God in the middle of all that is wrong in the world because of the curse of sin. Jesus is probably not using the the passive nice guy voice here. He's agitated, and with tears in his eyes, he says, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. He's totally dead you're too late. And Jesus said to her, "Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God?" Take your eyes off of Lazarus and see the bigger picture. The glory of God. And who was going to see the glory of God in this miracle? The one who believes. Who is going to see the glory of God in the crucifixion? To the unbeliever walking in darkness, it is foolishness and a stumbling block. But to those who are being saved by it, by God's grace, we see the light of the world and it then becomes the power and the wisdom of God. First Corinthians 1. So verse 41, they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. It's like he's saying, Father, I know that you know what I'm doing, and I know that you know what I'm saying. I'm just praying to you out loud so that, they, so that when I do what you and I both know I'm going to do, these people all around will know and believe that I am the Son of God, that I'm the promised Messiah. And when he'd said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, remember, with tears in his eyes, with angst in his heart, broken because of the condition of everything around him. Lazarus, come out! The man who died came out. Seems kind of anticlimactic. The man who died came out. What else was he going to do? God just told him to get up and get out of there his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth, and Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. You're probably going to go, okay, right? You're going to jump all over that. No showmanship. No smoke and mirrors. No music to pump up the crowd. None of that. No countdown from ten. Just a passionate Christ crying out a blatantly obvious command and a now formally dead man immediately obeying that command. Do you know how Lazarus' body went into that grave dead and came out alive? Because God said so. That's how. And do you remember why Lazarus' body went into that grave dead and came out alive? Why? So that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And these people, the Jews who are, who are there to mourn, some of them possibly even paid mourners. Yes, they had those back then. These Jews who have been so bummed to see Jesus so distraught, bless his heart, and wondered what might have been had Jesus gotten there on time. They are now looking and seeing a man wrapped in his grave clothes after the Spirit up and left. He's still tied up and he's hopping or shuffling out of this cave into the open air. How would you have responded if you saw a man shuffling out of a grave after Jesus, who you've heard can do some pretty amazing things, just hollered at him to come out? Maybe you'd run. What just happened? Maybe you'd freeze maybe you'd wonder is that really Lazarus anyways? that doesn't happen until you hear Jesus say unbind him and let him go and the people come to him they start to untie him they take away the grave clothes he's starting to get you know, back to loosening up or whatever though I doubt he was even still in rigor mortis because Jesus said come out he's probably all good to go isn't he and then they take that shroud off his head And who do you see? Lazarus. It's him. He's very much alive. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. All who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good, thanks to the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. John five twenty eight and 29. Now we're going to have to wait until next week to see what this crowd's going to do. Part two. Having seen this resurrection, having seen this life, what will they do with the resurrection and the life? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Lord and Savior. Are you believing? May it be true that you can truly say, Lord, I have believed and I am believing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power displayed through Jesus Christ. And we know though none of us could ever do such a thing, the raising of Lazarus from the dead is just one person. You're going to do this with everyone. And you will not be fatigued by that. It will not be a stretch for you. You spoke all of this into existence. God, we thank you that even though We've sinned against you being who you are and your holiness and your glory. We've sinned against you. Lord, we thank you that you love us and that you gave Jesus Christ, that the Son of God did come into the world, that he did live a perfect and sinless life, that though he deserved no punishment, that he deserved no death, he gave himself up willingly on the cross to pay the penalty of the the sin that we fully deserve. And so, God, we thank you. And I pray, Lord, that if there should be anybody here who has not yet put their faith and trust in Christ, that they would leave this place today saying, I have believed and I am believing. And that all of those here, the church here today, Christians that have put their faith and trust in you would be rejoicing in the goodness that you have given to them and the grace that you have shown to them in their salvation and my salvation. God, that we would joyfully walk with the light of the world without stumbling keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, may we go proclaiming the glories of our glorious Christ. I pray all of this in his name. Amen.